Welcome to Fringe with Benefits, episode 81. Stacy's back, ready to party, ready for the holidays, especially ready for the new year. What can we all do to make our world better, you ask? Investigate and analyze the strange and unusual is one thing we all can do. Question everything and keep your mind open. Stop thinking everything you have been taught is all truth. That's a detrimental way of thinking, and it's about time everyone realizes it. And that's why I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. Dun, 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 Stacy's socials. This is always the longest segment, probably because there's a whole lot of bullshit on my social media. First, the Idaho killings, the U of I Idaho killings. This is really close to home to me. I, we have mutual friends, these poor kids, just the whole thing is just awful. If you haven't heard about it, happened November 13th, early, early, early morning. It was after a night of partying. Everybody was asleep in this house. There were six kids sleeping in this house. Two girls survived. They were locked in their bedrooms on the bottom floor. The four children, well, I'm gonna call them children because they're pretty much my son's age, were stabbed to death. Their names were, let's say their names. Three female victims were Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, and Zanna Kernodal. And then the fourth victim was Ethan Chapin. They were sleeping, just sleeping, and somebody woke them up and stabbed them all to death. And it's just terrible. And I've been obsessed with this case since it happened because they haven't caught anybody yet. They don't have any suspects. It's, it's just weird. So there's, you know, all these internet sleuths that are trying to figure this out, trying to speculate as to what happened and who's responsible for this. And so I've been keeping an eye on things and just watching really closely. Obviously, I don't have any input except for, you know, I think I'm a true crime expert because I've been following true crime my whole life. It's been something that I've taken quite a bit of interest in and it could be my instinctual self-preservation skill that I, that's why I do it because I wanna know what's in these sickos heads so I can know how to protect myself and school my children on how to protect themselves. But even then, we are all at risk from psychos, right? And that's why I'm a big believer in learning how to protect yourself. This is a theory I read in one of these internet groups. And I thought it was interesting because it hypothesizes that maybe it might be related to a few other murders. So let's hear what Courtney Gill has to say from the Sleuth Society. She said, if I'm being honest, this theory terrifies me and it can be far off, but you never know. On June 13th in 2020, Sandra Gillen was found dead in her home in Washougal, Washington. The death was ruled as a homicide. There were multiple stab wounds found in her torso. She was attacked in the late hours of the night around 3 a.m., assumed. She was stabbed to death in her bed. No weapon was found, and her dog was left unharmed. She was a former school secretary. She was 71 years old. On August 13, 2021, Travis Jutton was killed in his home at 3 a.m. This was confirmed. Travis died while trying to fight off a masked intruder who attacked his wife as they were sleeping. Their pet dog was left unharmed. 
The killer struck while other people were in the home at the time and no weapon was found. Now, November 13th, in the Idaho killings in Moscow, Idaho, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Goncalves, Gonsalves, I don't know how to pronounce her name, sorry. Zana Kernodal and Madison Mogan were found dead in their home. They were killed around 3 a.m. in their beds. No weapon was found. Two roommates were unharmed, and you guessed it, their dog was unharmed as well. Also, we need to keep in mind there could be more connections we aren't aware of. We know Sandra was stabbed 19 times in the torso. We did... Sandra was stabbed 19 times in the torso. We don't know how many times the others were stabbed. We know Sandra and the Idaho kids were involved in the educational department. Sandra working for it and the Idaho kids being students. We have no idea what Travis and his wife did for a living. I'm sorry, part of the message was cut off. So the Travis Juton, I think, and his wife, they were killed. She doesn't sum it up, but let's continue. We have no idea what Travis and his wife did for a living. Although I'm more confused on the wife since she seemed to be the original target considering Travis woke up to her being attacked. Keep in mind the police have said they do not believe it's a serial killing and there could have been something else that happened. A million other things that happened. However, these places aren't far apart and the patterns are unsettling. Police aren't meant to put out all the information for obvious reasons such as mass hysteria and they can't let the killer know that they know certain things. So even though this wasn't very well written. She's got a lot of points and they're legit. And I personally, I think that it's probably more random. I really don't think unless one of the gals was being stalked like they're talking about. And I know the odds are a lot less that it was a random killing, but it just, it lines up with what this gal is saying. So I just wanted to put that out there that I'm following this. If anybody has any input about this, please, you know where to find me. Alec Murdoch, that prominent South Carolinian, Carolinian, how do you call him? Carolinaites. <laughs> he was a personal injury attorney. We talked about him a few times on the podcast. He has managed to escape accountability for a string of financial crimes that prosecutors are saying that he was the one to kill his wife and his son and sought to cover up the slayings for to gain sympathy and buy himself more time on those financial crimes. State has evidence showing that from 2011 and 2021, he stole money from clients in an unbroken chain of constant lies and misappropriation and thefts. This guy's been in some major shit. And it's all starting to come out. And he's in deep shit. And he was in deep shit at the time his wife and his youngest son were killed. And his son's been in deep shit. So if you're following the Murdoch murders, there's just a whole bunch of info there. And it's it's mind-blowing that the town is in on it. The police department's in on it. People have gotten away with bullshit just because that they're wealthy and powerful. And it's about time this kind of bullshit stops. Next, Danielle Maycabana, six years old. She was admitted to the hospital with flu symptoms and she passed away. She caught the flu the same time as her sisters, but she wasn't recovering. She was still fighting the flu after her sisters had recovered. She was taken to the hospital and then she was moved to the ICU where she was diagnosed with myocarditis. And this article says that the myocarditis is caused by the flu. 
Has anybody ever heard of a heart condition being caused by the flu? No, me neither. She had two heart procedures and began to breathe on her own, and then she just passed away after suffering a massive stroke. Now, I don't know about you, but this shit over and over and over and over and over again is really starting to piss me off, especially when it comes down to little kids dying of strokes. Washington Post talks about San Francisco is now going to be using robots to kill. So, backstory, about six years ago, police in Dallas were forced to improvise when a sniper killed five officers and began this really long standoff. They were unable to approach the shooter, so officers used a robot with an extending arm to guide a pound of C4 explosives, and then they detonated, killing the shooter, which is rad. I mean, anything that can prevent loss of life, it's awesome. This incident has sparked a debate over whether law enforcement officials should be allowed to use robots to administer deadly force. And San Francisco, just last week, told police that they could. The Board of Supervisors voted to pass a policy that would allow officers to use robots to kill when risk of loss of life to members of the public or officers is imminent and the officers cannot subdue the threat. The measure must pass a second vote and ultimately be approved by the mayor before becoming city law. Now, okay, they're going to allow robots to kill people that are a danger to society. I get that. But what about all these violent criminals that they just, you know, they arrest and then they let out and they arrest and then they let out and they rack up multiple charges, but they're still not behind bars. It's kind of like their priorities are totally whacked. So the fact that this is coming out in San Francisco, but they've got some really bad problems as it is, is just seems very asinine. This policy was proposed in September and amended to include provisions allowing lethal force at the request of the police department. An earlier draft set out that robots shall not be used as a use of force against any person but the police department struck out the line and replaced it. And then it was amended once more during a board meeting to add that one of the three senior police leaders must authorize. Now, this police department does not possess any armed robots and they do not plan to outfit its robots with firearms. It will be used only in extreme circumstances similar to what played out in Dallas in which the robot can be equipped with explosives to contact, incapacitate, or disorient a dangerous suspect. I, don't, I have mixed, mixed feelings on this. Like, I think if it's gonna save law enforcement's life or the public's life, if that's the only way they can do it, then by all means. But I mean, we've all seen RoboCop and we've all seen Terminator and it's a, it's a slippery slope to say the least. Next, um, <laughs> Lauren Hunter Damon, 27, was working as a webcam model for a popular site when she accidentally shot herself in the vajay. A 9mm handgun while alone in her bedroom. Um, Some of her roommates were in the house, and I guess she was maybe doing her cam show, and she was using a loaded gun. I don't know why, but the cops were... um, called to the scene of the crime. 
One of the housemates, Jordan Allen, who's the owner of the gun, he must have been like, here, go ahead and use my nine, (laughs) told deputies he was in the kitchen when he heard a gunshot. And Allen rushed to her room when he heard it and found her with blood dripping down her leg. Uh, Damon told him that she shot herself accidentally and started apologizing. And then a second housemate, Addie Johnson, further told deputies that sometime after the accidental discharge of the firearm, the girl walked into the home's living room telling her and the others that she accidentally shot herself. So she's still walking, so that's good. She was interviewed before she was taken to the hospital. And the account of the shooting was inconsistent with her claiming at one point that she discharged the weapon herself and another time when the gun went off during a consensual sex act with Alan. Alan mentioned that the site is called Chatterbait, which is gross, but whatever. That's when you receive donations from viewers in the form of tips in in return for a recorded staging of whatever they request the cam girl or boy to do. It's currently unknown whether or not she was broadcasting live when it went off or if she was recording a video to be uploaded later. And what's sad is her social media profiles reveal that she has at least one young child, an infant. I don't think she's going to be having any more after that. Maybe, but this is not the only time that this has happened. I've heard about this at least a couple other times. And I really want to know what's going through people's minds. For one, why didn't you check to see if there was um, bullets in the gun before you stuck it in your twat? Huh? Next is Judicial Watch. If you don't follow them, you really need to follow them. The Biden administration is giving a nonprofit partially funded by left-wing billionaire George Soros' Open Society Foundations $12 million to strengthen their labor rights and empower workers in three Latin American countries. Taxpayer dollars will go to the Solidarity Center. This is a Washington, D.C.-based group closely allied with open societies as well as the country's largest union conglomerate, the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. That's the AFL-CIO. The Solidarity Center mission is to help workers across the globe fight discrimination, exploitation, and systems that entrench poverty. It all sounds really good, doesn't it? Well, there's usually some sort of ulterior motive there. Not only does Solidarity Center claim to be the largest U.S.-based international worker rights organization, it also operates in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Most of its funding comes from, guess who? Our government. But private groups like Open Societies contribute generously. In 2020, the Solidarity Center received $39 million in federal awards, in 2019, they got $36 million from the U.S. And they get millions in other revenues that are not broken down on their annual report. But records obtained by Judicial Watch show that Open Society has given a lot of money to them in the last few years. Such as in 2020, 980000 2019, 780000 And 2018, it got 400000 from Soros' nonprofit. Now, his global foundation, Open Society, explains that these grants are for economic equity and justice, access to justice for migrant workers in the U.S., improving labor rights in Mexico and Central America, and the empowerment of vulnerable workers in the domestic and agricultural sectors in the Middle East. Domestically, Soros' groups have pushed a radical agenda that includes promoting an open border, 
fermenting racial disharmony by funding anti-capitalist black separationist organizations and financing movements that were involved in rioting, weakening the integrity of the nation's electoral system, and opposing U.S. counterterrorism efforts and eroding Second Amendment protections. None of that is good for us. Do your own research, Substack. Put an article out about the Active 6 trial. These are the ivermectin trials. This is a new NIH-funded randomized controlled trial published recently. This one definitely, they say, definitely proves ivermectin doesn't work for COVID-19. But if you look at the conclusions versus what the data says, it's the exact opposite. First, very few patients were correctly dosed. Some were underdosed. And a few more details, the drugs were sent to people by mail. So some patients took them for 13 or 14 days after symptom onset. Authors never saw the vast majority of patients. So this is not a good way to do an experiment, people. There's no reporting of adherence, so we don't even know how many people took what. And there's no protocol analysis, so we don't know how well the drug did in patients who actually took it. And still, the results are actually strongly positive for ivermectin if you strip back the bias that they put in this paper. So the authors write that there was a posterior probability of benefit of 0.91. And this is another way to say that they found 91% probability that ivermectin is superior to taking a placebo. This experiment failed to properly test the hypothesis. But these scientists are not seeing it this way. But I'm telling you what, if this is peer review, anybody who's got any balls is going to say that they manipulated this design. They manipulated this experiment and they need to go back to the drawing board. So they did say that ivermectin at 400 micrograms was safe without serious adverse events as compared with the placebo. And the article says, can you imagine a doctor telling you this drug had a, has a 91% chance of helping and it's very safe, so I can't really recommend it? And that's basically what this paper is saying. This is basically what they told us the whole time. This substack writing on the active six, six may be the strongest evidence of ivermectin's efficacy because the people that ran the trial clearly were not intending to arrive at that result. But when we peel back the layers of obfuscation, we can see it. So the, the proof is in the pudding. It's right there. Even if they lie all over the place, you could still see that the data points to that it helps. And I don't know, we're running over the same old ground that we've been running over the last couple of years, but with all the evidence that out th that's out there, and if I keep saying seeing it, I'm going to keep saying something. <sighs> Next is really fucking disturbing. And I told you, Fringe with Benefits is all about weird news, okay? And the weird reality that we all live in. So I'm going to warn you with this next one. Chad Mason, 36, was arrested for charges of lewd exhibition, exposure of sexual organs, and criminal mischief to a place of worship after he was caught with a dog on a walk in an apartment complex. He was seen having sex with this dog. And when he was confronted by someone at the apartment, he ran away and then ran into a church nearby, ruining a nativity set and broke multiple potted plants. And then he left the church, went to a nearby street, destroyed a mailbox, and then tried to steal a car. 
He had a golden doodle. He was walking this dog. He got it from somebody he knew. He knew the owner of the dog. And when he was out for a walk with this dog, he started to have fucking sex with this dog in front of children. Florida, this happened in Florida. Florida passed a law last year that made sexual acts involving animals a sex crime. Thank God. And according to that statute, a violator violator can be charged with a first-degree misdemeanor and be sentenced to one year of jail time and subjected to a $1,000 fine. It should be more, honestly. We don't know what this guy's going to be sentenced, but fucking lock him up. I mean, that's just disgusting and awful. Next, my friend Danae, who listens to the show. What up, Danae? Sent me some information about Dale Staling. 51 years old. 2013, he went to the Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado with his wife and his parents. He went for a hike to the Spruce Tree House ruin, left around 4.30 p.m., and the trail is about a quarter of a mile long. It connects with the Petroglyph Point Trail, which is about a two and a half mile loop with cliff exposure. Witnesses saw him on that trail and spoke to him. However, he did not come back. Now, seven years later, in 2020, his remains were discovered. So let's go back to the day that he disappeared. His family quickly reported him missing. Rangers first thought, thought he had gotten off track and told his wife to give him a couple more hours. A couple more hours went by. They still hadn't seen him. That's when they started an extensive search that began at the peak, included about 60 searchers, two dog teams, helicopters, rope teams, and that went on for two weeks. Initially, the canine team showed interest in the first few days, but soon after they were no help. The day he disappeared was a very hot day. He had no water with him. He had he did have his phone. Nobody was able to get any pings from it after his disappearance. Phone records show he tried to access his voicemail around 7 p.m. that night, which is strange. Jesse Farias, the chief ranger for Mesa Verde National Park, said the area had been heavily searched. He said, in November, we had a dog team come in and search the area again for human remains, but they did not pick up any hints, which is really weird to have these experienced search and rescue and dog teams come into an area to not find him for one it's not i mean it's a big area but it wasn't that long of a trail so he would have only been in one particular place and then the fact that they had dogs come out even more than just a couple times to find his body and they didn't pick up anything but then seven years he's found authorities say that no foul play was suspected Jesse Farias, Chief Ranger, says, My gut feeling is that he's out there somewhere and never left the park. There's no reason to think otherwise. There have been no sightings. The case is still open. Now, there's a lot of cliff areas in the park that goes down, filled with rocks. If he fell off a cliff, it would be almost impossible to see him. Jody Peterson, a writer and hiker, wrote in 2013, who was in the park the same day on on the Petroglyph Point Trail, she said, After an hour of walking, I suddenly heard a weary male voice call, I need some help. I thought of the missing hiker. Perhaps after visiting Spruce Treehouse, he attempted this trail and ran into trouble. I called out several times but got no response. I thought about going off trail to look, but I figured I'd become victim number two if I tried to scramble down those ledges and cliffs. My cell phone had no signal. I hiked back down the trail as fast as I could, and when I found the chief ranger, I told him what I heard. Relief washed over his face as another staffer said, We thought we heard a call for help in that area yesterday. They quickly began planning to bring in dogs and more searchers. 
I left the ranger station and stood looking at the opposite side of the canyon where I heard the call. I said a silent prayer. When I got back to my western Colorado home the following day, I checked the news thinking I'd read that the hiker had been found. Instead, I learned that Mitchell Dale Staling was still missing and now 70 people were looking for him. As I write this, it's been almost two weeks since he vanished and the search has been scaled down. A group of us think he's still somewhere in the park, said the chief ranger. We've all heard of planned disappearances, but it doesn't smell that way. The odds of him being found alive are basically zero, though. Perhaps he fell between the rocks in a place where searchers can't see him. Perhaps wind shifts made the dogs miss his scent. Dying alone in the wild sounds like a free and romantic way to exit this earth, and many of my outdoor friends say they prefer to perish outside, like Lawrence Oates. I've told him in agreement, remembering the member of Scott's ill-fated 1911 polar expedition who walked out into a blizzard to die. On some freezing cold night, I'll say what he did. I'm just going outside and maybe some time. My friend Albert imagines another sort of ending. My last moment will be at 12,000 feet in a thunderstorm. There'll be a big flash and all that'll be left is my flask and my hiking boots. And Joe has already picked out a sleeping bag to be buried in. But is that really how any of us want to die? Alone in the wilderness, unattended except by beetles and vultures? Better, I think, to be with those you love. So the article about staling goes on that maybe altitude sickness and dehydration took their toll. Another interesting thing. Okay, first I want to point out the fact that she heard a call for help. And in the missing 411 and other skinwalker or paranormal accounts, people hear a baby crying, a woman screaming, a call for help. And they'll get a bad feeling like they want to go help but then they know that if they go they could disappear too and she had the same feeling but plus in this article it talks about stealing who's of german origin and there are many many other unexplained disappearances that are either german or having a german origin name Superintendent Cliff Spencer said the anonymous it was an anonymous tip the day before indicating the remains of Dales were in a remote section of the park west of Durango. The tip did not provide an exact location, but descriptions in the tip gave search crews a good idea where it was. The body was found quite a distance away from where Stelling was last seen, around 4.2 miles. The area which took search crews about two hours to reach was searched in 2013 when he went missing. The county coroner said he's 99% sure the remains that are of Dale Steelings because of items found at the scene, a driver's license, credit cards, and a social security card that had his info on it. The coroner says he's going to meet with a forensic anthropologist to examine the remains, looking for any signs of trauma or clues that could explain the circumstances surrounding his mysterious death. Now, there's a lot of questions remaining about the circumstances of his disappearance, okay? And these all <laughs> echo the same stuff that's in all the strange disappearances in Missing 411. The first one is the remains were found in an area that was previously searched. The search was extensive, over two weeks, which included over 60 searchers, two dog teams, helicopters, rope teams. Why did they miss his body when they searched it? How did Dale get so badly lost on this hike? And how did he end up 4.2 miles from where he was last seen without water and supplies? And what caused his death? In a Westward article, which I thought was awesome, by the way, they talk about that there's approximately 1,600 people and perhaps many more have gone missing on public lands. And this is according to sources cited in a fascinating article from Outside Magazine. 
Now let's go back. I, I do believe that it is far more than 1,600 people because they say at present there's no way of telling how many like this one have taken place on public land since there isn't a federal database that allows access to information like that. There has been a petition titled Make the Department of the Interior Accountable for Persons Missing in our National Parks and Forests. And the petition's introduction reads, if search and rescue parties are unable to locate the missing, no records are required to be kept by our government about the missing person case or the circumstances surrounding the event. When remains of the missing are found, again, no records are required to be maintained. Often attempts to acquire information regarding the missing are blocked by bureaucratic red tape and or demands for exorbitant fees. It's time to demand that a national publicly accessible registry database be created in which all missing persons are accounted for in our national parks and forests and on BLM lands. The purpose of this would make the government accountable for keeping track and reporting of the missing to inform the public of the facts surrounding missing persons case on public lands as well as keeping account of all missing individuals and the circumstances under which they went missing on public lands. Stealing Dale is one of at least 60 unresolved missing persons cases in the national park system and this is according to data obtained from the park service. The exact number is not publicly available so isn't this interesting these two different articles state two different things. This one is saying that at least 60 unresolved missing person cases in the national park system, according to the data obtained by the park service. It goes on to say the exact number is not publicly available, but could be hundreds or more. Most search and rescue missions end quickly with subjects found, but others remain frustratingly unresolved. National Park System can be surprisingly easy place to go and stay missing. While law enforcement agencies at the Interior Department now record missing persons in the Incident Management and Reporting System, this practice only began in 2013. Missing person information is also entered into the National Law Enforcement Telecommunication System, and that is an information sharing network available to state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies and organizations. Individual park units may also notify local authorities when someone cannot be found. But there is no comprehensive roster of all persons who have gone missing. Part of the reason is the Park Service might not be the lead agency looking for someone reported missing. County sheriff's departments and even authorities from local municipalities might assume control of the investigations, with information sometimes flowing back to the park in question. The Park Service does, however, record cumulative figures submitted and compiled from its regional offices. Travis Heggie, a former public risk management specialist and tort claims officer for the Park Service, he's now an associate professor at Bowling Green State University, says that individual parks keep original search and rescue reports. At Yosemite National Park, there's more than 30 missing persons dating back to 1909. I guarantee there's more. When F.P. Shepard got lost on the way to Sentinel Dome, offering views of Yosemite Falls and Half Dome, a new case added this year is that of Maximilian Lee Schweitzer, who rented a vehicle, was discovered January 5th at a parking for Camp 4 in Yosemite Valley. A LinkedIn profile says he's a clandestine analyst for the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security. Yosemite National Park posts Facebook and Twitter messages encouraging anyone knowing anything about Schweitzer to contact the Park Service. His last name's Schweitzer, and he's got an interesting job. So that's Max Lee Schweitzer. The Park Service Investigative Services 
on their website lists 12 cold cases at Yosemite. They're unresolved with no active leads. Such as the case, which is in Missing 411, of Stacy Ann Aras, disappeared to take photographs on July 17th in 1981. She left her father and others camped at the Sunrise High Sierra Camp. Her father and daughter were a part of the group of 10 people riding mules on the High Sierra Loop. Approximately 100 people, as well as helicopters and dog teams, searched fruitlessly for the 14-year-old girl on several occasions. And here we talk about Dave Poletti's um, retired police officer criticizes the public serv park service for not making comprehensive lists of missing persons available to the public and has chided the agency for what he perceives as its indifference towards missing people in the parks. He says, you can go into any police department in the United States and within an hour, a police chief would lay down a list, but the park service will not release anything comprehensive. In Paletti's view, a complete list would be helpful to people seeking details from the government bureaucracy about missing family members and would enable families to share information with others in a similar predicament. Additionally, a list could increase the public's awareness of potential threats such as avalanche, topographic issues making hiking in a particularly area dangerous, and parks where there may be a rash of missing persons. When Pilates used the Freedom of Information Act to try and obtain a list of unsolved cases, he, would tol he was told it would cost him $1.4 in fees. He is the author of the book series Missing 411. The Park Service said he did not qualify for a news media fee exemption because his books are not in enough libraries. That's how I read my first couple books was in a library. Heidi Streetman, she's the one that got together the petition. She's an adjunct professor at Denver Community College. She agrees with Dave about the need for openness, and she collected more than 10,000 signatures on that petition, and she delivered the petition to the office of U.S. Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat in Colorado, but has yet to hear of any action being taken. The next one, I'm not sure if I want to share because it seems like old news, but it was an interesting article that I came across about a former CIA agent who shared a shocking deathbed confession talking about Area 51 and how he saw real-life aliens there, or extraterrestrials, I should say. He it spoke to Richard Dolan, who is awesome, and documentary maker Jeremy Corbell during a sit-down interview. He said he had seen UFOs in the flesh and confirmed the existence of extraterrestrials. His interview was sensational and was being warned to stop sharing confidential information. He thought he would be soon passing away. He, his claims were surrounding that he worked for the CIA between 1957 and 1960, where he spent time in a military base in the southeast of the U.S. where they analyzed physical evidence. Journalist Linda Moulton Howe interviewed him in 1998, 11 hours of audio tapes, he went by the name Agent Cooper. According to the interview, he was allegedly warned not to do any more. So that was, I guess, he's come out and talked twice. Once in 1998 to Linda Moulton Howe, and then again he came back in 2013 to talk to Richard Dolan. So who knows? Who knows? But this is not the only old guy that said, hey, I used to work for the military. I've seen things. And I cannot die without sharing the information that I know. Next, I kind of wanted to revisit the satanic ritual abuse allegations in Utah Valley. Remember that sheriff that was interviewing witnesses and victims of 
the county prosecutor and his wife. I mean, these people have been accused of raping and killing and torturing young children for decades, decades. And so if you look this up, there's been a whole lot of press releases in Utah Valley regarding satanic ritual abuse. Isn't that interesting? So this article talks about that Satanism and forms of ritualistic sexual abuse are being practiced in Utah and particularly in Utah Valley. The evidence exists in the minds and the hearts of the victims in the form of pain and crime and devastation. It is difficult to verify and unpleasant to pursue legally, but its existence is undeniable. Recent court cases involving child abuse with a wicked twist have spawned a flurry of investigations. Past curious cases and new interest in the existence of sex rings which combine perversion and satanic practice. Satanism and ritualistic sexual abuse are not necessarily the same thing, although they may be and often are tied together. Prosecutor says satanic abuse is not happening. Salt Lake County City County Attorney's Office debunks the theory that there is a ritualistic sexual abuse problem. Tom Vuk, one of four members of the sexual abuse investigation team for the county, said in August 10th, I don't know what year this is, in a personal interview, he has yet to handle a bona fide sexual abuse case that ties to satanic rituals. He says, yeah, I haven't had one yet, and we would know about it. He's been on the team for the past four years. He hasn't had special training in recognizing ritual sex abuse, but he feels that it isn't needed at this point. A victim will tell you what's going on, he said. Every case of reported sexual abuse in the three major cities in Salt Lake County and from the 15 police agencies in Salt Lake County eventually becomes comes through his office. He explained there's been a lot of talk. We had the allegations of one case, a boy who claimed he'd been involved in that kind of thing, but no one could verify anything he said, so we threw it out. Each of the four members on his team, Vuk's team, Vuk, <laughs> carries a continuous caseload of 751 sex abuse cases. He says, if you want to talk other types of sexual abuse, we have plenty of those. They are a majority of those cases involved father-daughter incest or live-in boyfriends who abuse their girlfriend's children. He said that any abuse case would come through his office. We would know about it, he said. He acknowledged that there be, may be cases that are reported to local police agencies that are discovered to be unfounded and subsequently thrown out at that level. Then they would not come to see us, he said. He said there's been no searches about ritualistic evidences, evidence. He said, listen, I've been involved with these kids. I went out and dug up the bishop kids, which he's referring to these children murdered by a sex offender, author Gary Bishop. He said, I had to see them. So believe me, if I thought there was that going on, I'd do something about it. A Utah County Sheriff's investigator believes Satanism is being practiced locally, but hasn't seen any clear-cut evidence tied in with child abuse yet. Detective Dennis Howard has been investigating for the Sheriff's Department since March of 1988. He says, I see a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of cases where kids tell us some real nightmares. He says, verifying the ritualism is the difficult part. Howard said he had recently had four cases across his desk in the same week that included a testimony about parents taking children to sex parties, sharing them with their friends, threatening to kill them. He also said there's an amount of ritualistic sex going on in Utah County. I don't know how much, but I think one case is a significant problem. He said the department knows several covens practice regularly in an isolated area, both in the north and south ends of the county, 
And he explained that many of the children he sees talk about being victimized by people in masks, people they don't know. One of the problems we have is that with small children, there's a certain inability to articulate what happened. Mind-blowing. And I mean, you got, everybody knows how I feel about this, but it needs to get out there. People need to look at it and stop ignoring it. Let's knock the business out of the way. Share the show. I mean, unless you don't like it, then I don't like, know why you're listening. Share the show. That would be rad. Um, send it to somebody that you know is into this kind of stuff. Next, write me a review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it will help if you give me five stars. And don't, you know, if you want to give me less, whatever, I don't give a shit. Just write a review. And follow me on all the socials. There's a Telegram link below. I do have a Patreon. Inward Survival is inwardsurvival.com. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. At Stacy Fringe is the show's Twitter. And you can also find me at Golden Valkyrie. Drop the E. Forbidden Clothes. If you want some cool fuck the system threads, go to Forbidden Clothes. Use the code word fringe and check out what they got, man. Because you can make a real statement this holiday season when you show up at mom's house with a sudden death syndrome t-shirt. And you can find me online as Stacy McCauley and Stacy Osorio. Maybe someday I will change my last name, but not anytime soon. I like it. Mailbag. I'm always looking for some mail, people. Send me your stories. I, you know, I get a few emails here and there, but it's like people just don't want to mail me. I don't get it. Also, if you want to be on the show, you want to be interviewed, you've got some crazy shit you want to say, this is the place to say it. You can find me at fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. You can also, if you want to send me some hate mail and just tell me what a big piece of shit you think I am, please do, because then I'll have some great content to read on the show. I'm going to share a haunting story that was sent to me. Okay, let's read it. This person says, it's anonymous. After securing a job that offered a great salary, a war veteran named Gary Hodges had to move to Lawton, Oklahoma, along with his family. Since they had not spent much time with Gary in the past few years because of him being in the military, Gary's brothers, Kevin and Wesley, were excited about this as they would be able to live with their brother yet again. But in 2009, Gary started to search for a house that would be big enough for his family, which was made up of Gary, his girlfriend Heather, Heather's daughter Caitlin, Kevin Wesley, and Wesley's girlfriend Sabrina. In his search, he found a house with enough space for his family, which was present in the middle of a perfect neighborhood. When he reached the doorstep of his house, he was greeted by its previous tenant, who had cut the lease period short. When Gary asked him why he was suddenly breaking his lease, his hands started trembling and he started beating around the bush. The man told Gary that he felt like he had spent enough time in the house, and it was the reason behind him breaking the lease period. Gary, who had spent more than two years in a war zone before, understood that man was lying at the very moment, but the size of the house and the cost of the lease were too inviting for him. Plus, he decided to take a look at the house before taking a, making a decision. When Gary asked the previous tenant if he could walk around the house, he immediately agreed. Still, when Gary entered the house, he noticed that the previous tenant was too hesitant to accompany him. In fact, he never entered the house. Thus, Gary entered the house all alone, and the moment he stepped into the house, he started feeling a strange sense of oddity inside it. As he walked through the house, he noticed that all the lights in the house, including the lights in the closet, were turned on. This is a really, really strange, as it was just afternoon, and the house was well lit by the sunlight coming from outside. 
Despite the strangeness, Gary decided to lease this house. When he told the previous tenant about it, he immediately took two, two trash bags filled with his belongings and drove away from the house. It appeared as if he fled from the house, but this did not change Gary's decision and the family ended up moving into the house. Two weeks after moving in, while the family, excluding Caitlin, was sitting in the hall watching TV one night, they heard the sound of heavy marching footsteps coming from the floor above them. Gary, being the eldest member, decided to go upstairs and check out what was causing the sound. He initially thought it was Caitlin who was walking around, but when he checked her room, he found her sound asleep. The sound, which had stopped by then, resumed all of a sudden, but now it seemed to be coming from his bedroom. Gary thought he had an intruder and burst into the room only to find no one inside. Not being able to come up with a logical explanation, Gary concluded that he was making things up. Later that night, while Gary and Heather were getting ready to sleep in their bedroom, Heather got into bed after turning off the lights in the room and the closet. Seconds later, she noticed that the closet light was turned on again. When she told Gary about it, he told her that she might have forgotten to turn off the closet light. Although Heather was sure about turning off the light, she got out of bed and turned it off again before going to sleep. Gary woke up in the middle of the night with a feeling of being watched, and when he opened his eyes, he saw that the closet door was open and the light was on. He immediately woke up Heather and showed it to her, hoping to get a rational explanation, but she couldn't even come up with one. Gary concluded that his brothers were playing a prank on him and confronted them the next day. His brothers told him that they were not behind the events of the previous night and suggested that it could be a faulty wireline. Gary did not believe them and stormed out of the place. A couple of nights later, Gary woke up in the middle of the night as he felt Heather's side of the bed slowly press down as if somebody sat on it. Coincidentally, Heather felt it as well. The couple jumped off their bed and turned on the lights but found no one else in the room. Gary thought that his brothers were playing a prank on them and bolted out of the room to confront them, but he found them asleep in their bedrooms. He returned back to his room completely confused and sat on the bed with Heather, trying to come up with a logical explanation. As a couple was trying to rationalize what just happened, they saw the light in the closet turn on in its own and through its grilled door. They saw a huge shadow move around inside the closet. Gary slowly walked towards the closet, opened the door, only to find no one inside. The couple understood that something was wrong with the room, and they decided to sleep in the hall that night. While they were almost asleep after settling down on the couch, they heard glass shatter on the hallway floor. When they walked towards the hallway to investigate, they found a drinking glass shattered on the floor. With the nearest table present multiple feet away, it appeared as if the glass flew from the table and hit the floor. These events made Gary believe that something paranormal was happening in the house. Gary became grumpy after that night because of his lack of sleep and his brothers felt as if he was being overreactive. This led to a heated argument in the dining room one day and during the argument the family saw a glass fly off the table in the kitchen and shatter on the floor. Seeing this happen right in front of their eyes, Kevin and Wesley started believing their brothers' claims. Although the family wanted to move out of the house at once, they couldn't do it because lack of finances. A couple of days later, while the family were sitting in the hall watching TV, they, they hear heavy thumping footsteps on the floor above them. Although creeped out, they decided to go upstairs together and check out what it was, but despite completely checking the first floor, they found no one. Making sure the first floor was empty, they walked back to the hall. The moment they got back to the ground floor, they noticed that all the cabinets and drawers were open. Whatever had opened them opened the refrigerator and the oven in the kitchen as well. That night, while Gary was taking a shower, he heard loud thumping footsteps on the ceiling above him. Hearing these footsteps, Heather rushed into the bathroom to make sure her husband was safe. But the moment she stepped in, 
Gary felt an extreme burning sensation and three deep claw marks slowly appear on his back. The couple rushed out of the washroom in fear and the footsteps stopped. The very same night while trying to sleep, Kevin heard someone climb up the stairs and walk up to the door of his room. Once the footsteps reached the door, they abruptly stopped. Kevin got down from his bed and opened the door, anticipating one of the family members to be there, but no one was outside the door. Kevin thought he was making it up and went back to his bed for sleep. Moments later, he heard eerie dragging sounds around him, and when he opened his eyes to investigate, he saw a demonic figure crawl towards him. Kevin shouted in fear, and the demonic figure magically disappeared. He immediately ran downstairs towards Gary and started crying in fear. Seeing the terror on Nelson's face, Gary and Wesley decided to investigate his room. Grabbing a knife, they walked into Nelson's room, but except for flickering lights, they found nothing. Gary grabbed a couple of pillows and a blanket for his brother and started walking back to the hall. On the way back, he heard footsteps in Caitlin's room, and he broke into the room. Just as always, Gary found no one inside. While he was about to walk out, he heard a tapping sound coming from the covered window. When he slowly pulled off the curtain to see who was tapping, he noticed the word Zozo on the window, and it was present on the outside of the window pane. Gary searched the internet, and he discovered the word Zozo is a demon that has a reputation for bringing bad intentions, bad luck, death, suicide, and much, much more. Zozo Demon is mainly associated with Ouija boards, and after getting to know these details, Gary and his brothers decided to make their own Ouija board and communicate with the demon haunting them. Using a shot glass as a planchette, the family started the seance. I think this is a really bad idea, Gary. Don't do it. So Gary asks, is anyone there? And they did not get any answers, but a couple of minutes later, the family felt a breeze hit them, and a shot glass moved to yes, and then to no, and then back to yes. The cycle continued and the shot glass moved back and forth until Sabrina asked, what is your name? The moment she finished her question, the shot glass moved to the letter Z, then to O, then back to Z, and then back to O, spelling it multiple times. Knowing they were communicating with the demon in their house, Gary asked, what do you want? The very next moment, the shot glass moved around the board to spell out, kill Gary. As the family looked at each other in shock, they started hearing thumping footsteps on the floor above them. The shot glass they were using as the planchette flew off the board and fell on the floor, shattering into pieces. The chairs around them started turning over, and Heather, feeling she had seen enough, lifted their handmade board off the table. The moment she did it, the paranormal events around them stopped. The family ended up burning the board in fear. After this awful seance, <laughs> the family did not notice anything paranormal for a week, and their happiness slowly returned, but this did not last long. One day, all of a sudden, the family heard loud stomps coming from the floor above them. The brothers decided to walk upstairs and check what was causing the sound. As they walked upstairs, they noticed that the sound was coming from Gary's bedroom, and thus they walked towards his room. The door of the room was slightly open, and they cautiously peeked through the opening. What they saw completely freaked them out. They saw a huge demonic figure with a bull-like head aggressively walking around the room. The demonic figure suddenly stopped, slowly turned his head towards the peeking brothers, and started running towards them. Completely petrified, the brothers ran downstairs to save themselves. Gary's fright slowly turned into rage, and he ended up confronting the demon. He shouted, I am not scared of you. Come now if you can. After hearing this, the demon slowly descended the staircase. As the footsteps slowly approached them, the doors around the family started shutting closed, and the family found themselves locked in the hall. When the demon finally descended the hall, Gary shouted, Get out of here! Hearing this, the demon looked dead at the family and gave a deafening growl. 
The growl was so loud that the glass objects around them shattered. These shattered pieces of glass slowly gathered into one shimmering cloud that was floating in midair. The shattered pieces suddenly flew towards the family. Luckily, the family were able to duck down in time and they were not hurt. They gathered themselves up, looked out for the demon, but it had already disappeared. And then the family ended up moving out of the house shortly after this event. I have no idea how true that is, but it's crazy. And I have had some personal experiences with this particular entity. I'm sure I shared it in a previous podcast, but maybe someday I'll share that story again. Send me some mail. Fringe with benefits at protonmail.com. Inward Survival School of Magic, we're going to talk about success. And there's a, a lot of criticism behind the term life hack. And I understand why. Okay, because the easier and softer way isn't always the best way. In fact, it's usually never the best way. Something about hearing from people who have had entrepreneurial success that it makes things come together and it helps people out a lot. It's because we know it took a lot of work and long hours and they make it sound super easy. Let's never mind any preconceived notions that I may have and let's see what 11 successful people have said about these particular magic pointers on how to do what they've done. And let's leave our bias and subjectivity in the dust and do a thought exercise. Well, I'll try. I, I can't guarantee. So the first one is Gary Vanercheck. He says, if you're doing everything yourself, you're dead. When other people are doing it, it's a lot, a lot more can be done. So his, his pointer is to hack people. Get people to do the work for you. Smart. Ask people for advice. Pick people's brains. Next, Ty Lopez. I'm not a huge fan of this dude, but let's see what he has to say. He says to take business meditation road trips. He says it's scientifically proven that traveling 150 to 200 miles from your home at least once a month triggers creativity. Rotating locations, staying in different cheap hotels or Airbnbs, bring some reading material and something to take notes. Strategize your life. He says, even if you could only be away for about two days because of other obligations, that's enough time to impact the direction of your life. Okay, my opinion here, I know I said I'd keep the bias away, but I, I really can't with this because this one doesn't seem very realistic or plausible for a lot of people. Not everyone can just take off for a couple of days, but we can do a small scale version of this, like go for a walk around a new place, think brainstorm exposing yourself to different activities or things or people could help spark some creativity so it is kind of a good tip next manny koshbin says to pounce on opportunity and figure out the details later this one is very risky and may actually be bad advice but who knows maybe not he's you know he, he makes does real estate deals sometimes he doesn't have the money up front and it's a killer deal, he takes the chance and then figures it out later. It's kind of kind of scary, but a lot of people make a lot of money doing that, so who knows. Next is Kam Mirza. He says to post reminders everywhere. Write important reminders on sticky notes, paste them everywhere, and then you watch your productivity and results skyrocket. This is a great pointer. David Goggins says to do that in the accountability mirror, if you've read that book. Chris Plow says, always ask for exactly what you want. 
I think this is excellent advice. Be frank. Tell people what you need. And this is something I struggle with myself. This is the magic advice is be upfront with people and tell them exactly what you want, exactly what you want to be paid, exactly how much time it's going to take. Stop sugarcoating shit for people. James Swanwick says to wear blue light blocking glasses. And his emphasis is on sleep, obviously. And that can cause a disruption in sleep if you're in front of electronics and the blue light is... It does bad things to your brain. It keeps you awake. It causes you to get low-quality sleep. So his advice is to wear the blue light blocking glasses. I don't... I've never used them. I got one uh, set of those for my kid. And I think it helps her. Kong Pham says to block out time to work on single tasks. He says he blocks out two to four hours every day to work on the most important thing. Puts it on his calendar, tells people to leave him alone. Emails closed, phone is off. He does not deviate from working at one task at a time. This helps with his quality of work and he stays focused. And the quantity of work improves as well because these distractions are limited and he manages to get more done faster. Katrina Palandri says to hire a virtual assistant. Upwork.com is a great resource for that. She said that um, if you don't find the right one on your first hire, don't give up. She found her perfect assistant on the seventh try. So that's a whole lot of assistants. I don't know if I need a virtual assistant yet. Probably in the future, it's going to be a necessity. But that's kind of going back to Gary Vaynerchuk's tip is hire other people. Next is schedule every item in your day as a calendar event. This is kind of bumped back to number seven, the blocking out time to work on single events or writing notes. It's just kind of like reiterating this, the same things over and over again, which repetition works. Scott Oldford said this and he said to, before you go to sleep, take five minutes to list everything you need to do the next day and then open your calendar and create specific events for those items. This allows you to see if you're taking on too much or if you need to delegate and how much time it should take someone else. Roy McDonald says to get others to do what you're bad at. Use leverage. The quicker you get away from doing what you're not good at, the quicker you start earning serious money. Focus on what you like to do and get others to do the rest. Kind of, you know, hacking other people, hiring a virtual assistant, hire people, hire out, outsource the stuff that is wasting your time that somebody else can do for you. And then last, Kevin Yamazaki said, hack your sleep. He goes through four to six month periods of what's called biphasic siesta. It's a sleep schedule, consists of five hours of sleep at night and a 25 minute nap in the early afternoon. Noon. You get a couple more hours in the day without sacrificing fatigue and the short nap increases alertness and productivity during evening hours. This could be somebody who's got a lot of flexibility in their schedule and they could pull it off or somebody who can just take a cat nap in the middle of the day. This could be exactly what some people need. Those are some pretty magical life hacks, I guess I should say, that take what's valuable to you and just leave the rest. Our Stoic of the Week is Theodore Roosevelt. He said, In any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. And last, 
The only time you really live fully is from 30 to 60. The younger slaves to dreams, the old servants of regrets. Only the middle-aged have all their five senses in the keeping of their wits. Have a great week. Thanks for joining me.